KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. They worked to find the truth, and now they're dead. Local journalists unite after their colleagues in Mexico are targeted. Hundreds of city jobs can't be filled. How is this affecting the services that San Diegans rely on? And taxpayers versus the NFL, the case that demands payback for losing the Chargers. I'm Matt Hoffman, and this is KPBS Roundtable. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Even under the best of circumstances, working as a reporter in Tijuana is a tough beat. But over the past few weeks, we've been reminded of just how dangerous it can be. Sunday night brought news that another reporter, Lourdes Maldonado Lopez, was murdered outside of her home. Here's some of our KPBS coverage from reporter Kitty Alvarado. Vengo también aquí para pedirle apoyo, ayuda y justicia laboral, porque se temo por mi vida. This is journalist Lourdes Maldonado in 2019, pleading with Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador for help because she feared for her life. On Sunday, she was gunned down outside her home in Tijuana. She's the second well-known reporter murdered in the border city in less than a week. Margarito Martinez was shot and killed outside of his Tijuana home on January 17th. I really want to say to you that my, my country, my city... Is safe for everyone, but it isn't true. No more. Aline Corpus has been a border region journalist for over 20 years. Maldonado and Martinez were her friends. She's devastated over their deaths. She says reporters in the region are feeling very vulnerable. I feel hopeless, hopeless. and later what happened. Lourdes was shot, so no. No, we don't feel safe in Tijuana. Nearly 150 journalists have died in similar violence since 2000. That makes Tijuana one of the most dangerous cities in the world for the press. Our guest today is Andrea Lopez Villafania from Voice of San Diego. She also leads the local chapter of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. They offer a place for networking and community building on both sides of the border. And welcome to Roundtable, Andrea. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Of course. So we know San Diego is home to several professional organizations for journalists, and NAHJ specifically includes those who also work in Tijuana. As the chapter president, is there a particular message that you're hearing from members as they sort of reflect on what's going on here? We're hearing a lot of people are obviously, you know, heartbroken. So many people were, were close to Margarito and Lourdes and I think there is obviously a a lot of fear, right? Because of what's happened. You know, people are obviously afraid. There's also a lot of frustration about the systems in place that offer journalists protections, but obviously are not working well. And I think there's also a deep desire and kind of um, empowerment 
to to say, you know, enough is enough. We demand justice and we're not going to back away from this fight. The reporters killed in recent weeks are Jose Luis Gamboa, Margarito Martinez Esquivel and Lourdes Maldonado Lopez. Uh, Andrea, how are they known and regarded within this community of cross-border journalists? You know, unfortunately, I, I didn't have, you know, the, the benefit or I wasn't lucky enough to know any of them. But from what I've seen and heard from some of our members who did work with them closely, I mean, it's just, it's incredibly sad. Margarito was a photojournalist and he often documented crime in the city of Tijuana. You know, he, he not only worked with news organizations in Tijuana, but he also worked as a fixer for the San Diego Union Tribune, the BBC and the LA Times. So he was someone that a lot of people knew and he touched a lot of lives. Uh, Lourdes was also remembered um, by so many people I was you know just seeing tweets of, of people who knew her who were describing her as a brave and dedicated journalist you know you played that clip earlier of her you know saying what she was dealing with and you know she she was kind of a, a voice during one of Margarito's uh, vigils you know demanding justice so she was definitely a, a very strong person. In the coverage this week we saw that video from 2019 when Lourdes Maldonado Lopez spoke to Mexico's president directly it was during a news conference and she told him that she feared for her life. What can journalists do to defend or protect themselves without stopping their work altogether? Yeah, I mean, and, and that's a great question. And I think that's a question that so many journalists and, uh, you know, organizations that kind of look to these kinds of issues are really just grappling with and pushing back against because both cases here, here in Tijuana, obviously, they, they're still under investigation. But I think it's clear, especially in Lourdes' case, that she had made it clear that she felt her life was in danger, you know, enough where she was telling the Mexican president, you know, what she was dealing with. She was enrolled in a system that's meant to protect journalists like her who have been threatened threatened or have a fear for their life. And, you know, and, and this still happened to her. So I think right now, just there's a lot of questions about these systems in place. And obviously that their people are feeling who that they're not effective. Right? They're not protecting journalists. Yeah, she definitely appealed to the highest power you can go. I'm talking with Andrea Lopez Villafaña from the National Association of Hispanic Journalists in San Diego and Tijuana. And Andrea, there's been a series of protests and demonstrations since these killings. What, what have we seen in recent days there and what's their message been? It's been incredible to see so many journalists from, I mean, mostly Mexico, right? There, there were so many protests and vigils and like I said, we're, we're seeing journalists kind of rising up and saying enough is enough. And this is not something new for journalists in Mexico. I mean, Tijuana and other parts of Mexico kind of experience these points in, in history where, where they witness more violence or more threats. So this isn't something new for them. But I think that what we're really seeing is, you know, journalists demanding accountability. I think often when individuals who are responsible for these crimes are caught, they're you know, held somewhat accountable, but not not significantly in a way that that makes a difference. And yeah, people people's lives are at risk right now. So you mentioned that a lot of these demonstrations are happening on the other side of the border. But this Friday night, there's a vigil that's going to be held here in San Diego. How can people participate and what's sort of going on there? Yeah, so our chapter is organizing a vigil in front um, in Little Italy in front of the Mexican consulate to honor the lives of these journalists. And so we'll be there on, on Friday starting at 6 p.m. Hopefully we'll have some journalists from Tijuana join us and, you know, tell us a little bit about their colleagues. I mean, it's been so difficult just seeing, you know, people posting things on Twitter. I think one that really 
you know, took me back was someone said, um, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll translate it, but, you know, he wrote, Esta semana he tenido miedo de salir a hacer mi trabajo, el que amo y hago con todo mi ser. So um, this journalist was saying, this week I've been afraid to go out and do my job, the job that I do with every inch of my being, right? And, and it's just so hard to, to hear that. Do you hear from some of your members that report across the border that they get threats a lot or, or what's sort of their experience been like reporting on the ground? Yeah, so not a lot. I mean, and this has always kind of been a, a dynamic for uh, journalists in, in San Diego or American journalists in general, right? They don't face the the same dangers that many journalists in Tijuana face. But on top of that, you know, there's a lot of protections in place. Just in general, the the ability to to leave the country if you do feel your life is in danger. I mean, just having life life insurance or health insurance, just it, it's it's completely different, completely different experience. Um, yeah. We're definitely dealing with a lot right now. The cost of living keeps rising, the pandemic's ongoing, and now this flare-up of targeted violence. How does this weigh on the mental health of those who do this kind of work, and how important is it to have these opportunities to come together and, and talk about this? Yeah, I mean, it's super important. I think one thing our chapter you know, has, has been really good at is building community, and not only that, but building a sense of, you know, that we're a family. And we always say our NHJ familia, we're a family, we're here for each other, you know, through the good times and the bad times. And and like you said, Matt, I mean, this pandemic has, has been hard on reporters. I mean, a lot of reporters have covered, you know, really tough stories. And, you know, now with everything going on, it's just, it's super important to get together, check in on each other, you know, even from the public hearing nice comments about the value of journalism and our work can mean a lot, can go a long way. Have you gotten any assurances, I don't know, whether it be your organization or some of the others, that the Mexican government is going to do something uh, to try and stop this? We've seen some things here and there, but I think more than assurances, right? I think at this point, it's gone on for so long that I think people want to move past assurances and actually see some sort of action. Uh, so that'll be interesting to to see how government in Mexico kind of deals with with everything. NAHJ is just one resource here in our cross-border region. Can you recommend any other organizations that have a focus on journalism and press freedom here? One specifically that comes to mind that would be a good resource to just kind of get to know is actually the the Tijuana group, Yo Si Soy Periodista. They they collect a lot of donations to help journalists in Tijuana. So if you're interested in supporting them, that would be an organization. Here in San Diego, we have uh, San Diego Association of Black Journalists, Asian American Journalists Association, and of course, SPJ, the Society of Professional Journalists here in San Diego and others. So there's definitely a strong journalism community here in San Diego, and we all really support each other. Andrea Lopez Villafaña is the chapter president for the National Association of Hispanic Journalists in San Diego and Tijuana. She's also the managing editor for Voice of San Diego. Always good to have you here, Andrea, and thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Matt. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. 
This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. A big part of what makes a city a community are the services that it provides. Librarians, trash collectors, maintenance teams, even lifeguards at a swimming pool. All of them are needed to build a safe and enriching place to live. But what happens when it becomes harder and harder to find people to do those jobs? The city of San Diego is going through it right now. Lisa Halverstadt explains what's going on in one of her latest pieces for Voice of San Diego. Welcome back to Roundtable, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Of course. So let's jump into this. You write that the city started this new year short about 1,900 workers. What kind of positions are we talking about? And is this impacting city business? So we're talking about lifeguards at city pools, as you said, city rec center and library workers, park maintenance workers, workers in the city department that approves building permits, city engineers, trash truck drivers, lots of different city jobs. What is the impact of this? Well, Openings at city pools, a lack of lifeguards, have meant fewer pool hours, as KPBS has also reported. The struggles to fill positions also mean park maintenance and library and rec center amenities might not be meeting residents' expectations. So residents are also possibly noticing that some things are taking longer than they did pre-pandemic as well. We've heard this phrase, uh, the great resignation, to describe what's happening in the workforces, both public and private across the country. Is that part of what's going on here? Yes. What I heard from union leaders and city officials is that some city employees have been retiring and some, in some cases sooner than they might have otherwise, and also moving on to other jobs that pay better or offer better benefits than the city of San Diego. Well, we know that a big perk of a job in local government is a pension, Lisa, but that was put on hold for new hires back by a 2012 ballot measure. Can you explain what happened there, and is that still contributing to this current problem? It absolutely is. So back in 2012, city voters approved Proposition B, which halted pensions, as you said, a big perk of a lot of government jobs, um, for new employees. So new hires were getting 401k retirement plans instead. This measure also capped the city's payroll essentially for five years. So city employees were not getting across the board annual raises, which all of us workers know are a big deal and something that we want. So a court ruling invalidated Proposition B, and the city's been trying to figure out uh, what to do next. It did start offering pensions to new city workers in July. It's still working out exactly how to credit city employees who had started appropriately, but say that, you know, they started at the city of San Diego not receiving pensions and how to make sure that they are kind of made whole in terms of their retirement savings. I'm talking with reporter Lisa Halverstadt from Voice of San Diego. And Lisa, even if the city could offer more competitive pay here, many applicants don't want to wait months to be hired. How long does it typically take to fill a position at the city and what stands in the way of that process going faster? Well, the city told me it took an average of 114 days to bring on a new employee last fiscal year, which is a long time to be waiting That clock starts essentially when a department requests to fill a position and ends when that new worker starts. Apparently, the timeline had been 98 days before the pandemic, which still isn't great, obviously, for any of us who've ever applied for a job and are wondering, am I going to get it or not? Waiting for that call. 
right now, the city has a lot of required bureaucratic steps it has to take before it proceeds, hence these really long timelines. The city departments have to do a formal requisition when they want to hire a new employee. Then they post a job and then they put together what they determine to be an eligible list. If that list is already ready to go, then that needs to just be certified. But shorter version is they've got a lot of bureaucratic steps to follow that other employers don't. And that can mean that the city loses out on potential employees who get a call back from another employer before they hear back from the city. And as everyone knows, housing in San Diego has always been a bit more expensive compared to other cities, but it's really been escalating over the past year or so. Lisa, how much do people need to earn to afford actually living in the city, and how does that compare to what some of these jobs are actually paying? So the University of Washington has a project where they calculate what folks need to make in different parts of the country to make ends meet without public assistance. And in San Diego County last year, that figure came to at least $18.43 an hour, or just under $39,000 in a year, for full-time jobs in a single person. We all know that required wages certainly would be higher for people with children and others to support. Not all city jobs are paying those rates or are paying pretty close to them in some cases. I think a really good example is ground maintenance workers. Those are folks that do basic maintenance work in city parks. They got a raise this year, but they're making roughly 37000 between 37000 and $44,000 now. And a union leader told me that some ground maintenance workers are working second jobs to make ends meet. And Lisa, the city is trying to be competitive here, though, right? I mean, in some sense, what are some of the new steps that they're taking, not only to try to retain current employees, but also to attract new ones? They are definitely trying to take steps to make jobs more attractive. Mayor Todd Gloria's first budget as mayor included raises for city workers. Per their labor deals, most city workers got a pay raise this fiscal year and another next year that will amount to about a 10% raise. Gloria and the city council also just backed a new city compensation philosophy that the city council approved this week to try to guide the city to pay wages that at least match the median salaries um, offered by other competing governments and to provide cost of living increases. The city has also taken some specific steps to try to make certain jobs more attractive. For example, they did give raises to extra raises to ground maintenance workers. They did a special pay adjustment for city lifeguards. And they also have approved sign-on bonuses for new trash truck drivers. But they've got a lot of work to do. You spoke with the union representative for this story. Is there anything that stands out to you from that conversation? I mean, are they saying that they're happy about how this administration is handling all this? So union leaders I spoke to certainly said that they appreciate the renewed interest in this topic and the fact that this is now an agenda item for a lot of city leaders. They're really recognizing that the city needs to work on hiring and retention. But they also really emphasize just how much of a hole the city is in here. They say that these challenges that the city faces uh, with hiring and retention are years in the making. And now they're exacerbated by the job trends that we've all seen during the pandemic. Okay, so we know that these jobs are out there. If people are interested in working for the city, what's the best way they can find out some more information? So I would recommend checking out the city's website, which is San Diego.gov, San Diego spelled out. And you should be able to find a little icon or button somewhere on the homepage advertising the city's open jobs. Lisa Halverstadt covers local government for Voice of San Diego. Always good to have you here. Thanks so much for your time, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. San Diego didn't lose the Chargers. 
the Chargers just lost San Diego. They're losing out on our strong marketplace. They're losing out on our unmatched quality of life. And probably most importantly, they're losing out on 56 years of dedication, of loyalty, of family. For San Diego Charger fans, that moment still stings. It's been five years since the team bailed on our city to move north and eventually play their games at SoFi Stadium up in Inglewood. That same building will host the NFC Championship game this weekend and then the Super Bowl. Football is back in the news this week, not because of that, but because a former city attorney who is no stranger to lawsuits is now suing the NFL. He wants the kind of payday that the city of St. Louis recently got in a case tied to the Rams' departure. Let's check back in with former Chargers broadcaster Lee Hacksaw Hamilton for his take on what's happening this week and what's happening on the field this weekend. Hey, Lee. Nice to chat with you. The minute this story broke, my heart ached. You know, I spent 13 years as the voice of the Chargers, and I stood in front of their facility the night they moved to Los Angeles and watched fans burn their gear in protest. Uh, To this day, I don't think the community has ever forgiven the NFL, Roger Goodell, or the Spanish family for what happened to 56 years of loyalty in San Diego. And we know some of the particulars of the lawsuit. You know, this it's alleging that the Chargers and the NFL broke their own relocation policies. But that aside, Lee, do you see this going anywhere? It's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a run uphill. I project immediately the National Football League is going to attempt to throw all types of roadblocks in front of this. They will ask for a dismissal of the lawsuit. Uh, they will ask that the case maybe go to arbitration. And I think they will also ask for a possible change of venue to either Los Angeles or to San Joaquin Valley, which kind of is the home of the Spanos family that owns the franchise. This will not be easy, but as we saw in the St. Louis lawsuit, the judge threw six different motions, the NFL fired at them to try to stop the Rams lawsuit. The judge rejected all the motions and ordered the case to go forward before the settlement actually happened. Yeah, and lawyers are basically saying, hey, look, the city of St. Louis, they got $700 million. We can do the same thing. But Lee, are the Chargers situations the same as the Rams in terms of relocation? There are some things that are similar. Stan Kroenke of the Rams and Dean Spanos of the Chargers, their lease expired in their old stadiums. Both stayed away from any negotiations with the respective cities, despite the fact St. Louis and San Diego put packages together to buy land and to fund construction. St. Louis had a $965 million stadium land proposal in front of Kroenke, never came to the table. San Diego, under Kevin Faulkner, the city and county, had a $1.2 billion stadium package. Spanos never came to the table. Those are the similarities. There is one thing I want you to consider in the differences between what happened in St. Louis and what happened in San Diego. And I think this is because Spanos and his lawyers predetermined we're going to put our own stadium ballot up for a vote. Tailgate Park had no chance of surviving. I think they intentionally put Tailgate Park down next to Petco Park up for a vote. And if it failed, they could go to the league and say, there we go. We showed you. We tried. They voted it down. We can move. I firmly believe that was an intangible part of the Spanos game plan to get to Los Angeles.
San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria and current city attorney Mara Elliott, they put out a statement wishing Micah Geary, the attorney here, success in his lawsuit. They mentioned how costly it is to sue an organization like the NFL, and they say it's an uphill battle. Do you think it's a good strategy not to have the city formally involved like it was up in St. Louis? You've got to understand that this will be very complicated. I thought Kevin Faulkner should have attached San Diego to the St. Louis lawsuit because there were some similarities. But I will also tell you there are some real differences here that we must pay attention to, Matt. One is is the question just about the amount of money San Diego committed to the Chargers over many, many years and never got anything really back in return. And then the owner walked away from the city. You know, there was a Super Bowl expansion, $78 million in the construction of all those extra seats. There was the ugliness of the ticket guarantee. $36 million San Diego had to eat there. $1.3 million practice facility the city built for the Chargers. Now, there's a lot of sentiment that because these things were included in old leases, they should go forward to the next set of negotiations. And that's not the case, according to the legal people that I talked to, that the old leases expired and what happened in the past was in the past. I think that's the thing that's infuriated everybody in San Diego is the Spanos family never put a penny of their own money into the construction of the stadium. I'm talking with former Chargers broadcaster Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. And Lee, in a couple of weeks, the Super Bowl is returning to Southern California. We're about 19 years from the last when San Diego hosted it back in 2003. And one of the reasons people wanted a new stadium here is to host this event. And I'm curious, is it still the same windfall for cities that it's been in the past? Super Bowls, I think, are tremendous for community's image. I think the number of people who come from out of town spend enormous amounts of money, be it hotel rooms, car rentals, restaurants, etc. So I think there is a windfall. But I will also tell you the league owners make phenomenal amounts of money as a byproduct of the Super Bowl, whether it's at SoFi Stadium or Tampa or Arizona or in some other city. So you understand why San Diego needed a new stadium, wanted a new stadium to keep its franchise, and at the same time, somewhere down the road, get the benefit of another Super Bowl or two as part of the rotation, did not happen. And finally, there's four teams that are left. Who do you see advancing beyond this weekend? Kansas City, Cincinnati, the Bengals are the Cinderella team. I just think Kansas City's got way too too much firepower for Cincinnati to hold up. The only way the Bengals can be in this game is to make it a throwing game and to go down the field a lot and pick on Kansas City's defense on picking the Chiefs to win. 49ers, Rams, these two coaches know each other. San Francisco has beaten the Rams six times in a row, but the Rams are playing vibrant football. They have much more high-octane offense than San Francisco has. If San Francisco gets on top, 49ers have a chance to shorten the game. Well, that's a familiar voice for San Diego sports fans. You can follow Hacksaw's work at LeeHacksawHamilton.com, including his daily Best 15 column. And Lee, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. We'll see where the lawsuit goes. Nice to be with you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's edition of KPBS Roundtable, and thank you to my guests, Andrea Lopez Villafania from the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, Lisa Halverstadt from Voice of San Diego, and former Chargers broadcaster Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. If you missed any part of our show, you can listen anytime on the KPBS Roundtable podcast. I'm Matt Hoffman. Join us next week on Roundtable. 
KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.